This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for another cram session. In these special releases, we have aggregated the takeaways and tips from previous episodes. If you'd like a focused refresher on previous topics covered, stay tuned for this cram session. Coming up next, we have the takeaways and tips from the must-have characteristics of SaaS startups with Tomas Tunguz. So great to have Tom on the program. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. Number one is the critical elements and metrics for SaaS startups pitching for capital. The four elements were, number one, it has to be a unique idea and a unique point of view and vision, what Peter Thiel calls the secret. Number two is they need to have a winner-take-all dynamic. Number three, Tom wants to see early signs of great sales and marketing execution. And finally, number four, Tom likes to see an ability to raise capital. This process is not a one-time event and most startups will have to raise subsequent funding in order to continue to grow and eventually reach an exit. And now the three metrics that Tom cited for SaaS success. Number one was revenue growth, and he wants to see 15 to 25% monthly revenue growth. Number two is payback period. Tom said the median is around 15 months, but every once in a while you find an exceptional payback in the six to eight month range. And finally, the third major metric is account expansion. So how much more are your customers paying you in this period versus the previous period? Okay, the second key takeaway is called sales in SaaS. Tom cited four items that are critical when conducting diligence calls with customers. On each call, he asked the following questions. Number one, related to growth, virality, and customer acquisition, he asks, How did you hear about this product? Number two, related to value proposition and defensibility, he asks, why is this product much better than everything else? Number three, related to speed of adoption and use, he asks, how is the implementation? And finally, number four, related to ongoing product use, engagement, and likelihood to recommend to others, he asks, Did the product deliver what the sales team promised? All right, the third and final takeaway is called SaaS pricing strategy. Tomash reviewed the mistakes that founders make when pricing their product, which can hurt their cash position, limit customer adoption, or cause elevated churn rates. These included, they don't move to annual prepay soon enough. So while critics believe startups may leave money on the table by offering a discount for annual prepay, This provides a huge cash efficiency advantage to a company where cash efficiency is king. 
The next trap that Tom mentioned was when startups have an overly complex pricing model. It doesn't really matter how appropriate a complicated model is. If it's too difficult for a user to understand, it will limit conversion. The next was a lack of understanding that price is an evolution. One needs to keep testing and keep evolving the pricing model over time. Tom also mentioned that customer procurement groups are often compensated by how much they can negotiate down. So startups need to approach the sales process with a lot of extra giveaways to throw in so that the customer can negotiate down and get their compensation. The final point we discussed related to SaaS pricing strategy was not using relative price discovery. So how much is the customer willing to pay relative to X product that already exists in the marketplace? And it doesn't have to be a perfect proxy for the new SaaS product on offer. It just needs to be related and similar enough to get an idea of acceptable price ranges that the customer is anchored on. Okay, let's wrap up with the tip of the week. And this week's tip is called building an investor brand. Tom and I had a chance today to reflect on our efforts to build an audience via blogging, him through writing and me through interviews. This got me thinking about what it means to build a brand as an investor and how one should consider their own reputation. Many that I know have no interest in creating a public persona and are quite content with having a private reputation in the investment community. But for those that are interested in building their investment brand, here are my thoughts on the factors one should consider. And the four main factors I'd like to talk about are portfolio, philosophy and thesis, network, and activity. So let's start out with portfolio. Clearly, what you invest in and how those investments have performed are going to weigh heavily on your brand. When I had less than 10 investments, I barely got a referral. Now I'm getting a few pitch decks per day, and often the decks are related to deals I've done in the past, whether from a sector, theme, or business model standpoint. The second factor was philosophy and thesis. Do you make 12 investments per year or only one? Is your standard check size 5,000, 50,000, or 500,000? Are you focused only on the seed stage, or are you willing to invest at any stage? Do you invest in one city, in one state, across the nation, or anywhere in the world? What sectors or themes do you advertise, or are you completely agnostic? Are you a highly active, roll-up-your-sleeves board member, or do you help when asked only? An investor's focus area will send clear signals to others in the market and inform the way others choose to interact. The third factor was network. Cultivating and growing one's network may be the most critical effort of all. There are two primary reasons for this. Number one is deal flow. I get a tremendous amount of high-quality deal flow through my network. People know I'm serious about investing, and when they have an appropriate opportunity looking for a $100,000 to $300,000 check size, they ping me. The second primary reason why network is critical is because of syndication partners. It doesn't really matter if you're a lone wolf, in an angel group, in an angel syndicate, or at a VC fund, investment partners are critical. Often, one party is not going to have a big enough check size to cover an entire investment round. And even if the check size is big enough, many smart investors will recruit partners that add value. 
I'm often amazed by the insight and effort that other investors have demonstrated in portfolio companies. Passionate and active syndication partners are hugely valuable. The fourth and final factor here is called activity. So how does one grow their network and promote their philosophy? By being active. To build a brand that others know and look to, one must take action. And there are numerous ways that individuals can carve out their niche through their value-added activities. There are bloggers, guest writers on media outlets, podcasters, conference organizers, conference speakers, meetup group leaders, incubator directors, pitch competition organizers, angel group leaders, university innovation coordinators, accelerator directors, startup mentors and advisors, and the list goes on. There is no one activity that is best for all. Rather, one should find something that fits with their current commitments and the method by which they want to provide value. If a personal investor brand is important to you, consider the four factors and start building. Up next are the takeaways and tips from the episode Entrepreneur Investor Fit with Pete Wilkins. Big thanks to Peter for joining us on the program. Let's recap the key takeaways. Number one is the early raise process. The first question every entrepreneur should ask is, do I need venture capital to grow the business? If the answer is yes, from Peter's standpoint, the first step is to put together some friends and family money and validate the product in the market. This will help you command the best terms from professional capital. Second, he discussed finding a super angel with domain expertise and some deep market experience that can help the business beyond just capital. If the entrepreneur is just looking for a check early on, they will miss out on the strategic insight, market knowledge, and network of knowledgeable investors. And recall Pete's comments about how a trusted authority in the market can substantiate the opportunity if it's pre-launch or pre-traction. Traction is always great to see early on, but not every type of business can bootstrap its way to a million users. It's only after the friends and family and this precede super angel money that one should pursue groups and funds for investment. And at this point, the strength of the business, its allies, and traction will give the startup the best opportunity for a successful raise. Key takeaway number two is investment as a transaction. Peter talked about how he's never met a successful entrepreneur that looks at this like a transaction. We've cited in the past how this is akin to a marriage and that you will be going through a number of ups and downs over the years. And there's no easy exits in this relationship. Most experienced angels will not treat this like a transaction and will not cut a check the first time they've met the entrepreneur. Excuse the analogy, but there may be a few dates before this partnership begins and that should be the expectation on both sides. The third and final takeaway is called the key elements evaluated. The first element that Peter discussed was member expertise matching. So with every opportunity that comes across their desk, they're looking for an expert within the group to help that startup and that entrepreneur. The second key element was what's the value proposition? At HPA, they're looking for strong value propositions that are defensible and provide lasting value. The third key element was traction to substantiate the value proposition. 
The fourth element was, can the management team take the business to where it needs to be for the next round of capital? And the fifth and final element was, what's the likelihood of getting the next round of capital? And that last item segues well into our tip of the week, which is the post-seed plan. Today, we touched on how angel groups and VCs often need to be partners in the funding process, not just as syndication partners within one round, but also for subsequent rounds of funding. Recently, a few of my portfolio companies have asked me to help them put together a post-seed funding plan. So these startups have closed their seed rounds, and in addition to building a great business, they need to think about their next capital raise. The following is a list of questions that I've sent over to the founders. The first question is, how long do you expect the Series A raise to take? Second question is, when do you plan to start raising a Series A? Next, I ask, do you have a burn-down contingency plan? What I mean by this is, if unexpected things happen, or the company fails to get traction toward a Series A, there should be multiple pro formas and plans around spending and headcount that are implemented in such a case. Clearly, this isn't preferred, but may be necessary for survival. The next question I ask is, what are the top three metrics that you are managing, and what level do they need to be at in order to have a strong case for Series A funding? This question may not be easy to answer, even if the founder has studied expectations in depth, because we can't predict what specific investors are looking for. And that really drives the next part of my post-seed plan, which starts with a request for the business to list out all the high-level characteristics that describe their startup. This list includes sector, geography, business model, customer type, theme or technology driver, and any other descriptive identifiers for the business. For this list of characteristics, I ask the founder to scan Crunchbase and any other data sources to find the Series A investors that are most active in their space. If, for example, the startup is selling an Internet of Things SaaS solution into the commercial construction industry and they are located in Austin, it's pretty easy to generate a list of all the active A players investing in SaaS and or IoT and or the construction industry. It's also fairly easy to find out who the active A-round investors are in Austin and in greater Texas. In some cases, they may even find investors that sit at the intersection of multiple characteristics. I then ask the startup to make a list of comparable, well-funded companies that have distinct similarities but are operating in different markets. This can be helpful for two reasons. Number one, if the startup can find a business that they aspire to, it's not that difficult to reach out to their founders and build a relationship. The advice one can get from a comparable business that's much further along can be invaluable. On top of that, they can make investor introductions, which leads to the next reason for identifying these well-funded comps. You can now build a very targeted list of Series A investors that understand the critical success factors in like businesses and also have an appetite for investing in the space. Once founders understand where to aim, the process is much easier. Series A investors that have a good reputation and are a strong fit can be pursued. And once the founder has networked into a meeting with the A investor, they can find out what they're looking for. 
the top three metrics or objectives that I mentioned before, maybe those aren't the top three that the investors care about. Maybe monetization is less important than user growth. Maybe customer growth is less important than churn. It could even be a fast land grab, winner-take-all situation where the Series A investor wants to get involved even earlier to throw more capital at marketing. The reality is that we can't all predict exactly what each A investor prioritizes, and they may have insight into the business model, growth, or otherwise that is necessary for further funding. As Peter discussed in today's episode, the lesson here is to find the right partners and work with them to understand what winning looks like. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend, and all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at Brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Up next are the takeaways and tips from the episode, The Value of Data with Leo Polovitz. Okay, for today's takeaways, I wanted to review the three major sections and their subcomponents within the Value of Data series. Number one was the importance of data. Here we discussed the historical reasons why data is becoming more important, and also the ways data has become a strong, defensible, sustainable competitive advantage. Older forms of competitive advantages, like software and hardware, are no longer as defensible. So what are the types of competitive advantage? Leo mentioned recommendations, where he gave the example of Yelp reviews, improved efficiency, where Leo mentioned Uber, and their ability to optimize their fleet of vehicles to serve the demand in different locations at different times, and finally, general predictions and modeling, where he talked about LendUp and where they can make better predictions about what people can and cannot pay as opposed to using an older inaccurate methods such as their credit score. The second major takeaway is called data collection. This section related to collection methods and tips. Here we reviewed how to tell if data can be valuable and how to collect it. First, we talked about the four attributes of data. 
Number one is it's hard to build. So easy to acquire data sets will have less value because they're not proprietary. Number two was the data has to be clean, accurate, and up-to-date. Bad data and old data does not just have no value. It actually has negative value if it's being used to make decisions. The third attribute was that the data has to be useful. In this portion, Leo compared purchase history and its tremendous predictive value versus data on shoe size, which may have very limited value. And the fourth and final attribute on data is the size of the data set. This relates to the sample size and statistical significance, but even beyond that, large size data sets are not only more relevant, but can be used in many more ways. After discussing the four attributes of data, we transitioned into the five major sources of data. Number one here was direct collection. This is asking users for feedback. Number two was crowdsourcing. So where data collection is often an outbound request, this source typically occurs inbound when a user chooses to contribute unsolicited. The third major source of data was paid crowdsourcing. This is different than the previous in that the company has hired an individual or service to acquire the data. In this case, the data may be publicly available, but not organized the way you need it, or may be scattered across many sources. The fourth major source of data he called data exhaust. This is data that's collected during normal usage of a product that the user often doesn't realize. It could be as simple as clicking one link when a list of five links are presented. And as digital online networks have grown, the importance of data exhaust has only grown with it. The fifth and final major source of data was combining data sets. This is the interrelationship between data sets that can create additional insights. And Leo closed off this section by suggesting that startups collect as much data as early as possible. The analysis and processing of data is less important early on, but merely the fact that it has been collected in a clean way will create many opportunities for a competitive advantage down the road. The third and final takeaway is on data business models. This is where we review different businesses that use data at their core. We first discussed the three ways that data can be monetized. This included, number one, selling the data directly. If you have data that others would like to access, the data itself can be the product or service. Number two was increasing revenue. So this is possible via better recommendations or better ad targeting. Essentially, the better you understand your customers, the better you can serve them through products and services. And the third way that data can be monetized was through expanding margin. This has to do with optimizing pricing or optimizing the cost side of the business. An example here was holding more appropriate levels of inventory, which can reduce inventory cost, and also increase revenue by preventing going out of stock. We then transitioned to talking about executing data monetization within different types of companies. There are four main types. First were content companies. For these types of businesses, Leo advocates A-B testing different types of content and different headlines. He also talked about measuring which types of content may elicit more sharing and which types may cause more engagement and or time reading other related material. He called this instrumenting readership. Depending on current goals for growth or engagement, different approaches can be used based on data. 
The second company type we talked about was e-commerce. Here he cited companies that send out boxes of products and subsequently monitor what people keep, what they send back, and what type of products and or product characteristics most resonate with them. The number three company type was data providers. For this group, Leo talked about those that sell access to premium data, those that sell API access to raw data, and those that wish to augment their existing data sets with external data. And finally, the fourth major type of company includes B2B and B2C tools. In this area, Leo's favorite includes tools that improve efficiency through converting emails or faxes into online forms. Approaches such as these can be used to collect large amounts of organized data by streamlining data entry for users. And Leo finished off today's discussion by reminding us that customers don't initially come for data advantages because it takes time to build value from data. So entrepreneurs need to first think about building a value proposition separate from the data in order to acquire customers. It is only after a critical mass of users and activity that the business can evolve and the experience can be enhanced through the value of data. Okay, with that, let's transition to our tip of the week. And this week's tip is called Death by Dendogram. On today's episode, the concept of dendograms and clustering came up. If you're not familiar with dendograms, they are sort of like a vertical decision tree. But instead of decisions, each branch represents submarkets within the greater market. The nice thing about these visual tools is it helps marketing and the executive team make data-driven decisions about what to innovate, how to position, and customer messaging. This is related to discussions about TAM versus SAM. What is the total available market that with geographic, channel, and product expansion can be accessed? Where with SAM, what is the specific target market that can be served right now? So at the very top of this dendogram tree is the entire customer market. And conceivably, at the very bottom, one could include every individual customer on a separate branch. And with a dendogram, the length of each of the branches indicates the relative difference between customer segments. The longer a branch for a node from its parent, the more disparate the traits of the subsegment. So, for example, let's take a look at the outdoor grilling market. At the top of the tree is the entire market. If we think about the types of customers that buy grills, let's pick three straightforward customer groups. Number one, I'll call the weekend warrior. This customer uses the grill once a week or less during the summer. The second group I'll call the outdoor chef. This customer may not use the grill frequently, but considers theirself a grilling expert and requires more control and better grilling equipment. Number three, I'll call the all-day, everyday griller. This customer may use the grill every chance he or she gets, amounting to three-plus times per week. So those are the three broad categories, but maybe there are subcategories within each. So that first category, the weekend warrior, may be split into 1A, the holiday dad, who likes to grill on holidays for neighborhood block parties, and 1B, the tailgater, who takes a portable grill to the football games on Sundays. And maybe the second group, that outdoor chef group, is broken into 2A, the culinary king, who has the top-of-the-line convection-style grill for the most accurate cooking, and 2B, 
the party yard, who has the most expensive grill, landscaping, fire pit, and pool, but rarely actually uses the equipment to cook food. These are just hypotheticals. I don't actually know anything about the grilling market. But as you can see, limitless levels of subgroups can be broken out that further define the differences between customer sets. And each of these segments have different sets of needs and wants that must be considered. This can be very valuable as the marketing team sizes each of these subcomponents. How realistic is it to build one product that serves all of these segments? Not very. Most startups will need to create a new disruptive product with tremendous value for one niche or subsegment of the overall market. And this niche needs to be large enough to justify the effort. The really great startups that I come across not only have a tightly defined strategy around a specific segment of the market, but also a vision by which their offering can expand to eventually address the majority of the market. The biggest mistake that I call death by dendogram is when all segments are pursued right from the beginning. Those trying to be everything to everyone often end up being nothing to anyone. The other common issue I see is those startups that don't have a vision or path to the big market. While executing and serving one segment very well is great, if there's no larger market opportunity, then the likelihood of a large venture return is much lower. I would not advocate asking an entrepreneur for their dendogram at the risk of getting some strange looks, but rather, I think it makes sense to ask founders about their customer segments. And if it's an early stage B2C company, maybe the amount of data is too limited to clearly define the segments. But that doesn't mean an entrepreneur can't have a hypothesis. Here are some questions that I typically ask. What are the target customer segments within the greater market? What are the need and want profiles for each? What is the degree of homogeneity between these target groups? Do they have wildly different psychographic and demographic profiles or not? Will an initial offering with a focused key benefit be able to serve each primary target group? In other words, can positioning and messaging be adapted such that you can appeal to the needs of each group without fundamentally changing the product or feature set? Are you able to use demographics to accurately predict which segment a potential customer will be in? And finally, does your channel or marketing approach allow you to adapt the value cell for each target segment? Part of what makes B2C so hard is that target markets often have much more disparate dendograms and profiles, and it can be very hard to define these segments. Whereas in enterprise B2B, a shorter number of customers can be interviewed, surveyed, and defined much more explicitly. But regardless of customer type, using data to understand customers and drive a go-to-market strategy is increasingly important and measurable in today's digital environment. That will conclude this cram session installment. Jump on the TFR website at fullratchet.net today to sign up for the newsletter and receive all the info on special content, episodes, and the best articles written on startups every week. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you next time.